0: Good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to see you all. Um, it's good to sing that we have no other King, Jesus. Uh, may, may our hearts believe as we've just asked and prayed. Um, well, before we uh, dig in this morning, uh, I, I want to just mention a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, we are, uh, we've been praying for our friends uh, who are members of our church, Charlie and Kendall Wallace, uh, who had their little baby, Amelia um, and, and she's, uh, down in the NICU in the med center and, and they, they knew this was happening, uh, they, before she was even born, uh, but has, she has, still has a couple of, uh, I think surgical procedures ahead of her, um, uh, the baby does. And so we just continue to pray for them and they're, they're praising God and it seems like she's doing okay. And so, uh, just be praying for them, uh, as they, as they're down there with her and, uh, trying to navigate, come, you know, being in the med center. Um, and then, and then also, I, I, I didn't get to be in here uh, on Friday night, but I walked past the doors and I saw like a lot of tables. And I, from what I understand, there were a lot of women in the room on Friday night. They didn't let me come, um, but it wasn't for me. It was for them. And so man, praise God for uh, uh, our our first Titus 2 uh, night for our women um, and so many that came and, and just enjoyed fellowship with one another. Um, it was a great group. And then, of course, our men uh, were here for, the, for breakfast the next morning. So praise God uh, for building uh, relationships and church family and fellowship and for, being in the, for him being in the middle of it. Well, uh, before, uh, we're, we're going to be digging in this morning uh, to a new series. Uh, as you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke and we're taking a break from Luke uh, this fall. Uh, we've, we've been mentioning that, but we're, we're going to be digging in starting today for a new series, uh, called from garden to glory. And so we're going to be looking at God's, uh, the story of God as it's been, as it's unfolded in his word. Um, and so we're going to be digging into this for the next uh, number of weeks. Well, uh, recently I, I walked in and caught, uh, a few minutes of a famous movie. Maybe, maybe you've seen the one I, I think I didn't catch it all, but I think they were out in the desert. Uh, it was, I I don't, I didn't really catch where, but there was a man and a woman and the bad guys, I think they were the bad guys. They lowered him down into a cave and both of these people went down into the cave. They sealed it up. Um, and, and what I learned was that this guy, he really hates snakes. Like that's, that was good. I gained from you may, you may know him. Um, they call him Indy, uh, Indiana Jones, I think was the full thing. Um, and I, I didn't catch it all, but basically what the movie was about was that, this guy hates snakes and he, together, they overcame his fears. They overcame his fear of snakes and, and it was just, it's a beautiful story. I hope you have a chance to see it. I didn't catch the whole thing. I think that's what it's about. Um, it's called Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not sure why it's called that, um, but it's a touching story about a man facing his fears. Um, didn't catch the whole thing. I think that's it. Um, of course, I've, uh, I've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I know what the story is. You're going, this, what are you talking about? Uh, the, I know what the movie's actually about, but why? Because I've seen the whole thing. Like I know what the whole thing is about. You see, a, a great story is not written like a sitcom, uh, with little interconnected stories that may transfer from episode to episode. It's not like a, an SNL episode where there are sketch sketches that have nothing to do one after the other. Uh, no, a great story, in a great story, every scene is a part of the whole. The author knows the ending, even as the beginning is written. Not, not every scene is re- as remarkable as the others. Some scenes advance the plot, other scenes develop characters, uh, but every, in every good story, there's a story arc, a destination that's charted out in the mind of the author. And, and, and though the author may be telling other stories in the, in the process, he or she is, not ever, is, ever, is never not telling the big story. And, and I'm afraid I'm afraid that many people actually have this problem when they come to the Bible. Uh, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of biblical illiteracy, uh, where people don't really know the Bible. I, I remember when our, our first son was born. In fact, both, both of our first two boys have Bible names. Our girls didn't get as clear Bible names. Sorry, I don't know if we got less. I don't know what happened. Sorry, girls. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, when our, when our, when our first son was born, we would, we would meet the new people with the baby and they go, Ooh, Judah, that's a neat name. Where'd you get that? And then we just have to go, well, it's from the Bible. And, and, you know, just watch there like, Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, we knew that. Um, and, and of course, who doesn't cringe when a a public figure massively misquotes a, a, a scripture or takes it completely out of context. Uh, Even amongst Christians, I think there are many who approach the Bible uh, like a history book, some like a textbook. In fact, I think many refer to the Bible, you you hear it from time to time, as the instruction manual for life. And and they approach the Bible the very same way that they may approach Google. I need an answer, I'll enter a few keywords and see if the Bible will spit me out an answer for my problem. Uh, Here's a moral tale that'll help me. Uh, Here's a pithy little quote that I can add to my quote book. Uh, No real concern as to like where that came from or what came before it or after it. Uh, But here's the little dose of Bible to get me through this moment. But this is not how God's word presents itself. And, And listen, God's word does have answers for our life. It really does. But if we make the Bible an encyclopedia for us, we will miss the reality that God has invited us into his story. A story that's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. And until we know the real story, we'll never know our place in it. And so for these, for these next few weeks, we're going to be taking a break from our usual format of going kind of verse by verse, section by section, uh, through a smaller section of scripture. And we're going to zoom out and, and, and really look at the unfolding story, the big picture of, that, that we find in the, in the pages of God's revealed word to us. And so this morning, as we're kicking off this journey, going through the story of God's word, we're going to start in the place where really any good story should start, uh, the beginning. And so as we go, we're going to answer three questions today. Number one, what is the story about? Number two, how does the story begin? And then number three, where is it going? Let's take a minute and just go to the Lord and pray. Right where you are, uh, would you ask the Lord, whatever it is that is the most, the thing that is most distracting you right now, the thing that is most burdening you or most, ma- most making you anxious, would you just confess it to him, share it with the Lord, cast your burdens upon him and ask him to move in your heart that, you, that, we, that we might hear and believe Now would you would you pray for me? I pray that I would not get in the way of his word but that we would hear clearly what God wants us to hear. Not me, not anyone else, but God from his word. Lord, would you you help us today? Apart from your spirit at work in our midst and in our hearts, apart from you and your care for us, we, we have no hope of understanding who you are. Lord, we praise you. We praise you that we have that you've come to us, that you've given us your word, that you've, that you've cared for us, that you've called us, that you've, uh, that, you've brought, uh, that you've brought men and women and children into your family. And so, Lord, now, would you, would you help us to, to hear from you, our Father, to hear from your word, to hear uh, the beauty of what you have made. And would you help us to rest in all that you've done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we, as we go through this series, if you're, if you're a reader, uh, I want to just commend a, f- a few books that have, have been formative for Lawson and I as we've been preparing for this series. Uh, and if, you, if so, if you enjoy reading and you'd like to read along, kind of something complimentary. I know a lot of you are getting ready to start Bible studies, and you got you're like, man, I got plenty of books to read right now. Uh, that's praise God. Uh, but if you'd like to read along, I've, I've got three up here on the screen. Um, the first one is God's big big picture. That's actually that one sounds really big because it says big in it, but it's actually a really small book um, by Vaughn Roberts. It's a great little overview of the scriptures um, according to plan. Uh, Roberts actually says, I just got everything from Goldsworthy. Uh, so Graham Goldsworthy has a, a great book. This is his, kind of his newest uh, iteration of this uh, idea, kind of teaching through biblical theology. Um, and then lastly is a, a great classic uh, by D.A. Carson called The God Who Is There um, that I'm sure many of you, or some of you I'm sure have read, and um, I, I, would, I would commend you to, to check out any of these. So we begin with number one. Uh, what is the story about? Uh, well, to know what the story of the Bible is about, first... I think before we can even answer that question, we first need to answer the question, who wrote it? Uh, And I think to that question, we, we have to first say, we only have the Bible because God chose to reveal himself to us. God would not be any less God if he had never revealed himself to us creatures. Isn't that amazing? Like we could know nothing of God except what we could open our eyes to see But he chose in his mercy to reveal himself to us. Praise God. So this is not our story, it's his. He's the one who's made himself known. And not only only did he reveal himself, but he chose to do so with words. He spoke to people in ages past and he ultimately had many words written down for us. We have a written collection of of his revelation of himself. I and mean, it's recorded as, as scripture, and so as we come to the Bible we, we see this diverse collection of writings there's different genres of literature, there's poetry and historical narrative and prophetic books, even some letters. Uh, there are diverse languages used there's Hebrew and Greek, even some aramaic and, and there are like forty different authors from all different backgrounds writing across two thousand or so years so so you could come to the right conclusion that there are many authors of the Bible. But despite the diversity of human authorship and composition, the Bible first and foremost has a singular author. The Holy Spirit inspired human beings using, using man's, each man's experience and linguistic style, but speaking God's word to us. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. We read that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So, so whether the law or whether instruction through the prophets, God's revelation is, is presented and being spoken of as the words from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3, uh, this is a well-known passage about God's word, 2 Timothy three sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God. These revelations that God has given us from his word, who do they come from? They come as God's very breath. Literally breathed out. This is a word connected to God's spirit. They're given to us by God himself. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, "Uh, we constantly thank you because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God. So yes, in in a sense, the Bible has many authors, but but scripture is testifying that there is one true author. Similarly, the the scriptures are comprised of many books, uh, but together God's revelation is one book, one story. So so what story is the Bible telling? Uh, Is is there a unifying factor for the story that the Bible is telling? And And I wanna put forward this proposition that what unifies all of God's revelation together is this, it's the gospel of Jesus. The story of God is a story about Jesus. You may go, well, that's, that's pretty presumptuous. I mean, a large chunk of the Bible was written way before Jesus came on the scene. I mean, the whole Old Testament, it's about Israel. There's no Jesus there. But, but listen, I want you to hear from the best Bible scholar in the history of the universe because he can help us understand how this works. So listen to what he says about the whole story. He says, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. This is Jesus speaking in John five. He's the greatest He's the greatest scholar in the history of the universe. <clears throat> you have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus says, you don't understand the Bible because you refuse to see that it's all about me. Maybe you've Maybe you've never heard that before. I, I, I'm sure in our church, probably a number of you you're like, yeah, I'm tracking with that. And then some of you may go, I've, I've never heard this idea. It just sounds like one verse that you picked. Uh, I'm not so sure. Well, let me give you another one. Uh, listen again to Jesus after his resurrection. This time he's talking not to the Pharisees, but to his own disciples. He's saying basically the same thing. This is in Luke 24 and verse 44. We read that he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I don't know about you, I really wish I was at that Bible study when Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus says, The law, the prophets, and the psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. He's saying, it's all about me. And these aren't just random categories. This was the organization of all the, the Hebrew scripture at the time. In fact, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible at that time was ordered slightly, slightly differently than we have it now in our copy of the scripture. Same books, just different order. Um, but they were organized in this way. The law, the first five books, the Torah, the prophets. This would include many of the history books and most of the prophets. We can see they're organized kind of in the, the former prophets, latter prophets organization. And then the writings, sometimes also just called the Psalms, which included, yes, the Psalms, but also the the wisdom literature and some additional historical books and and the book of Daniel. So when Jesus says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying the whole Old Testament. Let me just show you that the whole Old Testament scriptures taught of me from A to Z, beginning to end. The Old Testament is not God's other story. It's not the opener before the real band comes on the stage. No, God has been telling one gospel story and he's told it from the very beginning. If you think about it, the Old Testament, act one in the story, it's a cliffhanger. Goldsworthy says the Old Testament is a story without an ending. Why? Because the story's not done. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says this in her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. So, so if the whole Old Testament has been about Jesus, like we should probably pay attention then when Jesus shows up on the scene. <laughs> what is he saying about himself? What is he proclaiming when he finally shows up on the scene? In Luke chapter four, which we were in, you know, a while back when we were in Luke, uh, w- when Jesus first begins his ministry in Capernaum, he said this, he said, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. He says, I've come to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Okay, so we get the good news, the gospel, we get that about the kingdom of God. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? What kingdom? Well, the idea of a kingdom only makes sense if you've read the first act. The Old Testament needs the New to be complete, and the New really, the New Testament really calls upon the Old. So it makes so much more sense as we understand the whole story. Think of how the New Testament begins in the book of Matthew. What do we get? We get a genealogy. That's not really a great way to start something, is it? That seems kind of, you know, kind of counterintuitive. You want to start with something really hard-hitting. Uh, why? Because Matthew's showing us. He's proving that Jesus is from the royal line of David. He's saying, look, this is the Davidic ruler that we've been looking for. He is the fulfillment of the scriptures, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. But it doesn't just stop in the gospel accounts. The church picks up this gospel message in the book of Acts. Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter two, he tells tells the crowds, Jesus came from Israel's God. That's what he's saying. This, This is... This is from, he is from Israel's God. He's a king. He's better than David. In Peter's second sermon in Acts 3, he's he's telling them Moses uh, and and the prophets foretold this Jesus. That Jesus is actually Abraham's offspring. I mean, this doesn't sound like a gospel message that just like popped up out of nowhere, does it? He's he's saying, though, you got to look backwards. In Peter's third sermon in Acts chapter 4, Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone. He's saying he, he is, he's the most important piece of the new temple that God is building. And in chapter 5, another sermon of Peter's, Peter tells the high priest that Jesus is the king of Israel, a king who will bring repentance and forgiveness. And then finally, in Acts chapter 10, maybe you've been going, man, this sounds like, where do I fit into this? In Acts chapter 10, Peter proclaims that Jesus isn't just Israel's king. Jesus is a king for all nations, all peoples. This is why the New Testament describes us as having been grafted in. If you're not an ethnic Jew and you've believed in Jesus, then you've been adopted into a new international family. And your ancestors now have Jewish blood. The church is an international house laid on an Old Testament slab. This is the gospel Every Old Testament promise finding its yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the main point from beginning to end of the Bible. He is the Alpha and the Omega of all creation. And so, if Jesus is really at the center of it all, well, then I guess if we really want to understand the whole story, where, we, where should we start? The beginning. We should start at the beginning. Number three, how does the story, or number two, how does the story begin? Well, first things first, God. This is where the scriptures begin. The story begins with not not what began or how it began, but rather who began it. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Before heavens, before earth, before sun or trees or people, God. I I think it's actually fair to say this really isn't even the beginning of the story. Before the story itself, God. Before all of it, God. In fact, fast forward to the beginning of John's gospel in in the New Testament, the scripture that we read just a minute ago. What do we read? John 1. In the beginning, the word. This is Jesus. Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, there before time, the eternally preexistent one. He is with God. That means he's distinct from the father and he was God, which means he is divine. And what was he doing there in the beginning? Verse three all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus at work in creating. Oh, and who else do we see active as the work of creation is about to begin? We go back to Genesis chapter one, verse two. We read that the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The spirit of God like like a mother bird hovering over her nest where creation was soon to spring to life. The creation story is not a story about God's beginning. No, our triune God uh, was there. God is. There is never a time God was not. Psalm 90 verse two says it this way. Before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you are God. God. So we must know that even in Genesis 1, we're entering into God's story already in progress. God's story is already going. His story has no beginning. But now, the beginning of everything else, every other molecule, begins with God. So first, God. And second, God's creation. So how did God do it? Genesis says he did it with a word where nothing existed, God spoke, and now matter exists. Genesis 1 and 2 is is an account of words becoming things, words becoming life and people. Creation needed God's word to exist. And and Genesis 1, if you read through Genesis 1, you'll see that creation is described as, as happening in six days. And and the point of our discussion today isn't to debate uh, theories about creation, whether these are actual 24-hour days uh, or whether something else is being described in Genesis 1. And listen, I, I know like people really get hung up on this part of the conversation. Uh, but, but do you know what, what many great theologians throughout sh- history have inclu- concluded about, uh, about this part of the conversation? That it's actually really hard to know what's going on. It's actually really hard to know. That, that while Genesis 2 seems to be written in this narrative uh, style where we're describing what God's done, Genesis 1 also has many elements of, of, of Hebrew rhythm and poetry, uh, which is very common in the scriptures, even in narrative. And so, listen, there are strong arguments in favor of a, of a young earth view of Genesis chapter one. And there are strong arguments from the scriptures for an older earth view of Genesis chapter one. But, but listen, there is a strong inclination in some parts of Christianity right now, to say, if you don't hold to a specific view of Genesis 1, particularly the young earth view of Genesis 1, then you don't love the Bible. Or you're a heretic, or you're on your way to atheism, bowing your knee to science. But just to help us out, can I I just tell you a few names of people whose view of Genesis might be called heretical as they wrestled through the meaning of what Genesis 1 is really teaching? Early church fathers Augustine and Irenaeus, Charles Spurgeon, Francis Schaeffer, more contemporary voices like Wayne Grudem and J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller. Listen, here's what I believe is most important in considering church history's view of creation. It's this, is that we should be humble in our posture. Rather than demonize those who, who view Genesis 1 in a different way than you, let's just instead... Agree upon what all Christians have always acknowledged is the most clear and most important thing in the text, which is this that God and God alone created. God made everything you see ex nihilo out of nothing. This isn't mythology, it's history. We didn't come from a big bang, from primordial goo, or from a battle between the gods. No, there is only one God who is the cause of all that exists. God spoke and it happened. There was nothing, and then by a word, light. There was nothing, and then by a word, hammerhead sharks. Nothing, and then by a word, a real historical man named Adam. How? Because God, over and over, what do we read? God said, it happened, and he saw that it was good. God said, it happened, and he saw that it was good. And not only is he the cause, he is the king over all of it. We see the physical world being established, it has structure, it has order. And what do we see the world doing? We see the world obeying his command. And in a most incredible, most humbling turn, in his final creative act on the sixth day of creation, we read in Genesis 1:27 so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The king of all creation crowns us, men and women, to bear his image. That's amazing. Stars didn't get this. Trees and sunsets, horses, none of them get this designation. Just us. Every human being, Christian or not, bears the image of God. And there, there's a lot to say about God's image, but, but I, think, I think this speaks less to any particular attributes about God being applied to humans and more towards humans, the, the importance of humans, the value of human beings. Human life carries dignity and worth to our maker. We display him in a unique way. Only humans are being described as as knowing God. And as we've seen, the restoration plan of God that, that occurs throughout all of scripture It it all centers, not, not around restoring the trees or the stars or the animals, but certainly he is going to restore the creation. But the center of all of it is his restoring plan of redeeming humanity. Romans 8 verse 19 says this, All of creation longs for what? For the sons of God to be revealed. All of creation is waiting for a restored humanity. And then look in in verse 28 of of chapter 1 of Genesis there. Look at the great task that the Lord gives to his image bearers. We read, God blessed them. and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. This is what a vision, like for life. This is go make more people. Go, go tend the tend the earth. Go work in it. Go, go be go be fruitful. And God's already proved He's the one ultimately in charge. He's, he's the King, but He get, He gives us the chance to play, to be stewards. And He gives He gives to us only something He could give. We couldn't have taken it that we get a position of governance over His creation. Isn't that beautiful? And David, I think, articulates in Psalm chapter eight how this, I think it's really the only way that we should feel when we hear this. This is what, how David felt. He said, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. David's going, Who am I? Who are we? What a humble honor that you would allow us to care for your creation. That we get to cultivate the land, to treat animals with dignity, most especially to honor all those made in the image of God. What an honor. And so at the beginning of this story, we now see a picture of God's kingdom that we're going to see throughout the scripture. We see God's people in God's place under God's gracious rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's gracious rule and blessing. This is, these are categories from uh, the, the little Vaughn Roberts book I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> Roberts calls creation then the pattern of that kingdom. It, it's the, the, the creation is a picture. It's showing us a picture of how the kingdom of God should be. What what do we see? We see man and woman, Adam and Eve. That's God's people. They're bearing his image. They're placed into a home. That's, That's God's place. A perfect garden where he would dwell with them. And they're under his rule and his blessing. They're experiencing uninterrupted fellowship with God and with one another. No shame, we read. Perfectly living out their calling, tending the garden with God, stewarding the earth, What a beautiful picture. But of course we know that Eden won't stay this way forever. So, number three, where is the story going? Where is the story going? Soon, uh, sin will invade the creation. And we'll talk about that more next week. But as as sin comes into the creation... The rest of the story, the rest of the story will become a yearning to return to the blessing of Eden. Like don't, don't you feel that even still? If only we could experience that sort of peace. And so as, as we consider the beginning of the story, I, I want to give us just a few, a few responses that I think that we should have in our hearts as we hear of the story of god's creation first creation leads us to marvel at god's power like we are we are god's creatures even though we bear his image we are the cre- we're part of the creation his creatures we're totally dependent upon him we don't breathe without his care we don't eat unless he makes the rainfall and makes the, unless he makes the sunshine but guess what? He does. Like he's, he's holding our very hearts beating together right now. Colossians chapter one says, he holds all things together. We would cease to exist without the continued power of God. And he, and he so graciously gives it to us. He keeps us alive. He helps us to live. What grace Second, creation should cause us to have a a, a right view, I would say even a high view of physical life. Like now, certainly there are people who overvalue the physical, uh, who think there is nothing but the physical. But I think as Christians, often we're tempted to think that, that really only what happens in the heart, that's the spiritual stuff. But we go back to creation. What do we see God making? He doesn't just create spiritual stuff. He creates physical stuff, stuff you can touch. And what does he call it? He calls it good. Even the new earth. The new earth will be physical. Think of what's to come. He promises that we're going to have resurrected bodies, like real bodies, flesh and blood bodies. He promises and speaks of feasts and wine, of cities and of beauty. Yes, our sin is forgiven. So spiritual reality is perfect and wonderful. But also physical things: the blind will see, the lame will walk. So we can rejoice in the physical. You can look at a sunset and marvel. You running and dancing and swimming; these are these are gifts. The tastes of good food and drink, the joy that music brings, kissing your spouse. Laughing when you, as you mark your kid's height on the wall and it seems to go past yours. This is a gift. Crying and tearing up over, over a movie that moves you or, or, or over a song or a sermon that moves you. And just feeling the tears roll down your face. This is a gift. Our physical lives are not ultimate. But they are not unspiritual. Third, creation leads us to lament what we've lost. Our lives are so different from the garden, aren't they? And don't we lament the brokenness in our lives, the sorrow, the suffering we experience, the pain that we've inflicted on others and the pain that others have inflicted on us. We grieve the loss of free and easy fellowship with God free and easy fellowship with other people. We lament our painful knees, our broken relationships that that don't seem to heal, the destructiveness of cancer, children that are wayward and far from us. It's okay to lament. But lastly, creation helps us long for the better Eden to come. One of my favorite places on the earth that I've ever been uh, is to the giant Sequoia National Forest in California. And afterwards, if there's like someplace better, tell me. I'll, hopefully I'll go there one day. Uh, but if you've never been to this forest, uh, <laughs> I, it's like almost impossible to s- describe it. The trees are like, I'm, I'm, not, this isn't, I'm not exaggerating, are like bigger around some of them than this stage. That's how big they are. I, I I just imagine the the some of the first people that, that maybe maybe this area there there had never been people that have wandered up into these this this mountain, this mountain area and I just imagine they just got terrified because they thought giants probably live here. <laughs> if the trees are that big, I can't. I don't want. I don't even want to know about the people. Um, <laughs> that's that is. It's unbelievable. But I, I can't help but think that maybe in the new earth, all the trees will be like that. Like that all the trees are just not quite there to their potential yet. I don't know. I don't have a theology of what trees are gonna be like. Um, but, uh, But I do think there is a sense in which you and I, men and women, we were made to be giant sequoias. And because of sin, doesn't it just seem like we're Charlie Brown's little Christmas tree? Like this ratty, old, junky, thing clogged up messed up by sin never as fruitful as we want to be never displaying the image of God as clearly as we ought friends we know how the story ends though there is hope and the hope is not just in the ending we God is changing us from one glory to another even now and and we can't think of creation without remembering and thinking of what he's bringing about in us and what's to come. The creation yet to come, the new creation. If you remember the very last day of God's creation, uh, what did he do on that day? He didn't create anything, did he? What did he do? He rested. Genesis 2, starting in verse 2. Actually, I don't understand why the chapter break is here. I feel like this should be at the end of chapter 1. But Genesis 2, starting in verse 2, On the seventh day, God had completed His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it He rested from all His work of creation. And of course, God's people Israel—they remembered this day, right? They set it apart. They were commanded to remember the Sabbath, to rest from their labor, to keep it as holy. Uh, Why? Because they they were—it was—it was for them to remember to remember that, that God made everything, to remember that they had rest in God and that they depended wholly on him. But if you notice in that passage, what does that day not have? The refrain is missing, right? The end. It is, if, if it was like the other creation days, it, we would read this. There was evening and morning the seventh day. But, but do you know why that part of the refrain is missing? It's because God's rest never ended. God's rest never ended. God's Sabbath continues now. God's existence is pointing us toward an ultimate home. An existence where we won't fully experience. Well, we, we will only then fully experience what it means to live in the Sabbath rest of God. And in that day, we will fully enter the rest of God. He will say, "Enter into my rest." And don't we long for that to happen? Just this week, I, I had the honor of preaching at our brother John Evans' uh, celebration of life service. And there is now a rest for John. But to say goodbye makes us feel really restless in this life, doesn't it? Several families in our church right now are walking through significant difficulty: severe illness, painful marital brokenness. And so we cry out, "How long, O oh Lord? When will the striving end? When will our suffering cease?" But here's the kicker. Hebrews chapter four says this, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And guess what? We won't know it fully until the new earth, but it's ours even now. The Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all, he entered the creation He was not created. He was separate from the creation, but he identified with it. He moved in. He didn't have to, but he took on flesh. He became like us and he laid his very life down. He left glory and was broken for us. All so that he might look to you and to me and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is your rest from work, from striving, your rest from pain. He is your rest from sin and from sorrow, even now, and he will be forevermore. And how does he offer us this rest? He purchased it with his own blood, and he rose again. And his rising again is the first fruit of resurrection, like the first plant to emerge out of the ground after winter. And what does that emergence tell us? It helps us to know that because of his grace, that one day we too will emerge from the ground, that we will follow after him. We will be resurrected with physical bodies. This, the corruptible will put on incorruptibility. And in that day, we will know full rest. We will live together in the new Eden, the new holy city, as Jesus is making all things new. So friends, hold on. In your suffering, in your lamenting, in your pain, hold on. For those who are in Christ, your rest is coming and it is even yours now in increasing measure. And that future rest will be better than Eden, way better. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, would would you cause our hearts to believe what your word says? Would we see your great power and creation? That even when we open our eyes as we walk outside today, that we would look around and say, how? How is there a God so powerful Lord, would that sort of worship rise up within us? But even more so, Lord, would you draw us as your creatures, as those who bear your image, would you draw us into the rest that you offer through the gospel of Jesus? Would you help us to experience that gospel rest, that rest from our efforts to please you, our efforts to to impress you, our efforts to earn our way with you, are performing for everyone else. And Lord, would we know that the rest that we need was purchased by Christ? And would you help us to rest in him? So Lord, help us. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.